Well, good evening. Let's try again. Good evening. Everybody doing well, I hope? Well, this evening we continue, and we're in uh, Second Chronicles. This evening we're in chapter 29, and we're going to go through a fair amount of Scripture this evening. What we're going to read isn't all that complicated, but it does give us a very bright and hopeful future for the children of Israel at this time in their history. They had just gone probably through the worst of times, and now they're going to go through the best of times. And this is what I tend to remind Christians who are freaking out right now, that God is capable of doing all sorts of wonderful things in our world for his glory. I mean, if this is the end, then this is the end, and then we'll go to be with the Lord. But if it's not, God is capable of bringing revival and awakenings and all kinds of things he can do. And, you know, I would say that things are really dark. Things are really bad. Things are really evil. The world is perverse, and the problems in it are challenging. But so was the case in Israel at this time. So was this for the southern kingdom of Judah, a very difficult time. But God raised up a good king from the, one of the worst kings in the kingdom of Judah. Just like Ahaz was the son of Jotham, one of the good kings, he was an evil man, but then he had a good son. You see, the pendulum swings, and we oftentimes go through times of great revival and then into times of great lethargy. And I think it's just important to remember that as long as we pray to God and God is in control, the most amazing things can happen, and especially in the hearts of our leaders. God can change our leaders, amen? He can give us good and godly leaders. He can give us leaders we never expected to have. And I think it's important to remember that God is in control. Let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that as we study your word this evening, you would instill us with hope and encouragement to see how things can be turned around so quickly and so wonderfully when you get involved in our lives. So, Lord, we commit to you our nation. We commit to you the times in which we live, our culture, and we simply ask that you would be God over all, that you would just lead us in the direction that you've called us to go and to the places you've called us to be, that you would receive all the glory in and through our lives and bring revival to our land, bring a spiritual awakening in our our culture that we might cry out to you as a nation and be spared your judgment. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you were here last week or you listened online, you know that the uh, study last week was dark. Ahaz was an evil, wicked man. But now we read in chapter 1, of, excuse me, chapter 29, verse 1, we read in Second Chronicles 29, 1, Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. Let's just stop there right now uh, in, the, in our study before we go any further. This is his ascent to the throne. He inherited the kingdom of Judah from his father Ahaz, and he became co-regent. This gets a little bit confusing because Though there were fathers and sons, they weren't always of the same political party. In fact, many times, this is the case here, you had one godly father and then an ungodly son, or you had an ungodly father and a godly son. That was the case here. So there were these co-regencies, that is, there was a king, a high king, and then sort of a crown prince who was also a king, and this was done to get the support of the people to support the king, 
And uh, we see it in today in our politics. We see when someone runs for president, they pick a running mate. And generally, that running mate is designed to bring in more support. And of course, there are many governments in our world today that are parliamentary. And they have a large number of people who have to, after an election, like in Canada or in Israel or even in Britain, we've seen this even recently in Britain, the nation, the, the, the members of the parliament, that, or the Knesset in the case of Israel, have to come together and form a coalition. They have to work together. And that is something that hasn't happened in our nation for a long time now. One party gets into power and they don't even really try to work with the other party. And, and, and that's a problem. It, it's it's kind of why we are where we're at right now. So because of that and the problems we're facing in our nation, it's important to remember we cry out to God for our leaders, that he would give us leaders who would unite us as a people, but unite us under God. One nation under God. Not united under all manner of ungodliness like they're trying to do in our nation today. So the situation with co-regency helped the, the throne to be stronger than it would be otherwise. In fact, Hezekiah became co-regent in the seventh year of his father's reign, as ruling monarch. And this was his third year, actually, his father's third year as sole monarch. So here he is getting involved in government at a young age. He actually became ruling monarch when his father retired in the 16th year of his reign. That had happened with his grandfather, Jotham, and it also happened with Hezekiah, uh, his, his father Ahaz, retiring. Now, we can speculate as to why that happened, but when you, when you study the chronology, it's clear what happened is he became so unpopular, Ahaz, his, his approval ratings were so low that he had no choice but to step aside and let Hezekiah, even though he was the second king, take control of the, of the nation. And that happened because Ahaz was so wicked, the people wouldn't support him. And so because he was the, the father, he maintained his title, but he really just sort of stepped aside. And Hezekiah took over, and the nation turned around. And so sometimes we pray that our leaders that are inept and incapable will retire and step aside, but then we look at those that are supposed to be supporting them, and we think, would it be any better or would it be worse? In our nation, I think it's pretty clear. I don't think it could get much worse, but it wouldn't get any better, that's for sure. So here's what we do know. We do know that as far as co-regency is concerned, it was helpful in maintaining unity in the kingdom of Judah. Now, the chronology here suggests that he reigned supreme for four years before his father's death. So during those first four years, things got better. But he became sole monarch when his father died in his 20th year as king. So he's already been king for a while, and now he gets full control without any hindrance and he's able to turn the nation around because he was a godly man. Just to give you an idea how young he was, he reigned as king for 29 years after his father's death. He was 25 years old. That's a young man. When he became sole monarch after his father died. But he had already been involved in government since he was 12. He was 12 years old when he became a co-regent, 21 years old when he became the ruling monarch while his father was still alive. Why do I mention these ages? So you can see the guy didn't just show up at 25 years old and turn the kingdom around. He had been involved in government for many years as a young man 
He was involved, and now he has full control. And guess what? He's able to make changes right away. We're told this mother was Abijah. She was the daughter of Zechariah. She was a godly woman, even though his father wasn't. For you see, Abijah means Jehovah is my father. And Zechariah, that would be his grandfather on his mother's side, means Jehovah remembers. And God remembered his people, and he was a father to his mother, and therefore his mother was able to raise him in a godly way. Clearly his father was not. So think about it. There are a lot of single moms in this world raising children, and they don't have the benefit and the support of a a godly man or a godly father to help them. But look what a single mom, I'm going to say a single mom because her husband was wicked. He had no part in really the raising of Hezekiah. This woman on her own as a godly woman clearly was able to raise Hezekiah up so that he got involved in the government around 12, but by the time he's 25, He's able to be used by God to bring a revival to the nation. So that should encourage moms, especially single moms, raising their children. You can make a difference. Her her difference in her son clearly made a difference in the nation. So now we read some of the more encouraging words. In chapter 29, verse 2, we read, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Just as his father David had done. We've been reading. All along we've been reading. Oh, he he did write some of the good kings. He did write in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father David. That was he was like a B plus, a B or B plus. He wasn't an A plus. He wasn't he wasn't a, a, a great godly king, but he was okay. Here now we read Hezekiah was a good and godly king, and not only is it said that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord just as his father David had done. So how do you go from one of the most wicked kings to one of the greatest kings? Well, there are a couple of factors. God's number one. He's involved in raising up this man. A godly mother who's involved in raising up this man. This man being given experience as a king before he takes over the kingdom. But I got to believe the number one impactful factor was prayer. People were beginning to pray because things became so wicked. They cried out to God and asked God, give us a godly leader. This clown is not really able to lead us. We could pray that same exact prayer verbatim. Are we? Are we praying for God to give us good and godly leaders in the next two elections? You better start praying because we need God to intervene or we're sunk. Well, back to the kingdom of Judah and the people of Israel. This man was fully devoted to the Lord as God. He did follow that example of David. Now, David served the Lord wholeheartedly, even though he was a guilty sinner. He sinned against the Lord, but he repented. He was a man after God's own heart, and he had a heart to praise and worship the Lord. And this man, Hezekiah, did not follow the example of his wicked father. So there's hope for those of us who were not raised by godly parents. There's hope for those who were never given the foundation that many Christian children are. Remember, Ahaz was given a great foundation, and he blew it. But Ezekiah was more than likely given that foundation through his mother's family, and he became a great success. Now, he was the only king since David 
to do something else. I'm going to turn to 2 Kings chapter 18. I'm just going to read this for you because this is a wonderful testimony. In verse 4, we, we read something we haven't read in a long time. Uh, as far as the kings of Judah are concerned, we read that he removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles, and he broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan, or a thing of brass. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not cease to follow him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses. I just feel like cheering. I mean, my goodness, how wonderful it is when God raises up a good and godly leader. He did. He was faithful to his people. And what a wonderful testimony. You see, he's the only king since David to completely eliminate the idolatrous altars from the land. Remember, I've shared with you that the people were still continuing to worship false gods, even when kings like Jotham and others were worshiping the Lord. They continued to worship false gods, to worship idols. But he worshiped the Lord, and he refused to tolerate any false religious practices within his kingdom. He wouldn't look the other way while others openly disobeyed the word of the Lord. He didn't just say, live and let live. He removed the infamous high places, all of the idolatrous images in the land. And he's able to accomplish this by graciously inspiring the people to obey the Lord. So success will come to a nation or a kingdom when the leader graciously encourages the people to seek the Lord. Amen? Amen? That is the key to success in a nation, in a country, in a kingdom. He did something else. He destroyed Moses' brazen serpent. Now, the Lord had used this image to deliver the rebellious Israelites. It's recorded for us in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. And the people of Judah were now worshiping the Lord's image of salvation, but not worshiping the Lord himself. You know, there are some people that wear crosses, adorn their homes with crosses. They might even do the sign of the cross, but you know what? They don't know God. It's not enough to have an image of salvation. You need to know the God, the Lord of salvation. And the people did not. Instead, they were worshiping and burning incense to a a symbol, a, a, a graven image, really. But God had told them to make this image, and you can read about it, because they were to raise this pole with this brazen serpent on it when the people were being judged for their sins. And as this, they were bit by serpents, if they looked to the brazen serpent they would be healed. And Jesus actually used this account in Numbers 21 to foreshadow his crucifixion in John's Gospel and in chapter 3 and in verse 14. I'm sure you're familiar with it. In John chapter 3, verse 14, I'll read it for you. I'm I'm sure you've read it before. You're certainly familiar with the chapter. But in 3.14, it says this, Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So Jesus used that symbol of that brazen serpent to speak of his own crucifixion. Just like people looked to the brazen serpent and they were healed of having been bitten by the the serpents that judged the children of Israel in the wilderness for their sins, 
Those of us who look to Jesus on the cross are healed and saved from what the serpent represents, our sin. Our sin. So it's a beautiful type. It's something that you can read about in Numbers 21, but it comes up again here in this text because Hezekiah called this brazen serpent Nekosheth Nekosh, which basically means a thing of brass. It's nothing more than a thing of brass. Nehushtan. But people were worshiping it. And he, it says he, he smashed it. He wanted no part of it. Now, when Jesus used this account to foreshadow his crucifixion, the, the typology is fascinating because brass in the Bible is a metal that speaks of God's judgment. You would bring animals to the brazen altar to sacrifice them as judgment or payment for sin. Brass is a symbol of judgment. In fact, outside the temple, there were two bronze or brass pillars, speaking of God's judgment. And so the judgment for sin that was taking place before you could enter into the holy place and then ultimately the most holy place. And Jesus was judged for our sins so that we may be delivered from judgment. So the, the symbolism is a very beautiful thing. One little note, the Cathedral of St. Ambrose in Milan, Italy, claims to have reassembled these pieces of the bronze serpent so that, uh, once again, I guess, people can bow down and burn incense to it again. People don't change, do they? Well, we read in Second Kings, which is the parallel book that speaks about the life of King Hezekiah and his reign. It told us, we read it in verses 5 and 6, that his trust in the Lord and his obedience to his word distinguished him among the kings of Judah. This is what distinguished him, his obedience to his word and his trust in the Lord. Now, kings like Asa, Jehoshaphat, and Josiah were similarly praised. We'll see that. But there were other kings like Joash, Amaziah, Uzziah, and Jotham. Though they were good kings, they weren't praised to the same degree that these other kings were. So there were a handful of good kings, but there really were only four really good kings. Are you with me? And this man, Hezekiah, we're told, and we've read it already, was about as good as it gets. In fact, what did we read in our text in Second Chronicles? We read that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. But then when we go to Second, Second Kings... We read, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and it goes on to say, there was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. You know, we hold certain leaders in our nation in high esteem, or at least we should. Some people don't because they hate our nation and everything it stands for. But we look to leaders like George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and others, great, great leaders, great men who led our nation during difficult times. And we think there's never been another George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. Well, Hezekiah, king of Judah, was one of a kind. So good things can come out of difficult times. That's the point I guess I really want to instill in your heart. If you're fearful, I've heard some Christians say things like, oh, it's never going to go back to the way it was. Really? I mean, it could. God can do all things, Amen. To say something like that is just so negative, you know? And I, I, don't, I don't subscribe to that way of thinking. They may be right, they may be wrong. That's according to God's will. But don't say it can't happen. Because God can do 
anything. Amen? With God, all things are possible. And that's how I pray. I pray by faith. One of the things he did is he showed great concern for the Lord's temple. Now, bear with me. There's a lot of reading here. It's pretty simple and straightforward. I'll read it for you. You just have to listen so you, you get the break. I don't. So I got to read from chapter 29, verse 3 through 36. And in this section, we're going to see just how much Hezekiah cared for the Lord's temple, his house. Okay, let me get back to my place in Second Chronicles, and we'll pick it up in chapter 3. In the first month of the first year of his reign, he opened the doors of the temple of the Lord and repaired them. He brought in the priests and the Levites. He assembled them in the square on the east side and said, Listen to me, Levites, consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the temple of the Lord, the God of your fathers. Remove all defilement from the sanctuary. Our fathers were unfaithful. He could certainly say his father had been. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord our God and forsook him. They turned their faces away from the Lord's dwelling place. They turned their backs on him. They also shut the doors of the portico and put out the lamps. They did not burn incense or present any burnt offerings at the sanctuary to the God of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord has fallen on Judah and Jerusalem. He has made them an object of dread and horror and scorn. As you can see with your own eyes, this is why our fathers have fallen by the sword and why our sons and daughters and our wives are in captivity. Now I intend to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, so that his fierce anger will turn away from us. My sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him and serve him, to minister before him and to burn incense. Then the Levites set to work from the Kohathites, and it lists several people from the the Kohathites, uh, that particular portion of the tribe of Levi, and from the Merorites, and it lists their names, and the Gershonites, and it lists their names, and the descendants of Eliphon and Shimri and Joel, list them all there, and the descendants of Asaph, and the descendants of Heman, and the descendants of Judith. And these are these are all the particular tribes or clans of the Levites who were responsible for taking care of the temple. They were cast aside during the time Ahaz was king. And also the descendants of Asaph, Heman, and Jedithan, these were the worship leaders that basically were put on furlough because no one was worshiping the Lord at the temple. When they had assembled their brothers and consecrated themselves, they went in to purify the temple of the Lord as the king had ordered, following the word of the Lord. Notice, following the word of the Lord. The priests went into the sanctuary of the Lord to purify it. They brought out to the courtyard of the Lord's temple everything unclean that they found in the temple of the Lord. The Levites took it and carried it out to the Kidron Valley. They began the, the consecration on the first day of the first month, and by the eighth day of the eighth month, they reached the portico of the Lord. So they're cleaning house. Boy, do we need our house to be cleaned, cleansed in Washington. But they cleaned house. They got all the way to the portico. That's the porch. Look, it took a long time for that to happen. And for the eight more days, they consecrated the temple of the Lord itself, finishing on the 16th day of the first month. Then they went into King Hezekiah and reported, we have purified the entire temple of the Lord, the altar of burnt offering, and with all of its utensils, and the table for setting out the consecrated bread with all of its articles. We have prepared and consecrated all the articles that King Ahaz removed. In his unfaithfulness, while he was king, they are now in front of the Lord's altar. Amen. This is a revival. This is, this is a, a, a time of awakening. The, the nation, at least the temple at this point, is being restored. 
Early the next morning, King Hezekiah gathered the city officials together and went up to the temple of the Lord. They brought seven bulls, seven rams, and seven male lambs, and seven male goats as a sin offering for the kingdom, for the sanctuary, and for Judah. And the king commanded the priests and the descendants of Aaron to offer these on the altar of the Lord. So they slaughtered the bulls, and the priests took the blood and sprinkled it on the altar. Next they slaughtered the rams and sprinkled their blood on the altar. Then they slaughtered the lambs and sprinkled their blood on the altar. The goats for the sin offering were brought before the king in assembly, and they laid their hands on them. That is, they confessed their sins, and then the animal symbolically would take their sin and pay the price. And there's a symbol of Jesus who did that exact thing for us on his cross. Then priests, or the priests, then slaughtered the goats and presented their blood on the altar for a sin offering to atone or cover for all Israel because the king had ordered the burnt offering and the sin offering for all Israel. This hadn't happened in years. He stationed the Levites in the temple of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres in the way prescribed by David and Gad, the king's seer, and Nathan the prophet. This was commanded by the Lord through his prophet, so the Levites stood ready with David's instruments and the priests with their trumpets. Remember I mentioned that the worship leaders were brought back into the worship system in Judah. Hezekiah gave the order to sacrifice the burnt offering on the altar, and as the offering began, singing to the Lord began also, accompanied by trumpets and the instruments of David, king of Israel. The whole assembly bowed in worship while the singers sound, uh, singers bowed in worship while the singers, excuse me, the whole assembly bowed in worship while the singers sang, And the trumpets played. All this continued until the sacrifice of the burnt offering was completed. That's a consecration uh, offering. They're offering on the altar a consecration offering to consecrate their hearts to God. And when the offerings were finished, the king and everyone present with him knelt down and worshipped. See, worship is always at the center of revival. King Hezekiah and his officials ordered the Levites to praise the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. So they sang praises with gladness and bowed their heads and worshipped. And then Hezekiah said, You have now dedicated yourselves to the Lord. Come and bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the temple of the Lord. So the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings, and all whose hearts were willing brought burnt offerings. The number of burnt offerings the assembly brought was 70 bulls, 100 rams, 200 male lambs, and all of them for burnt offerings to the Lord. The animals consecrated as sacrifices amounted to 600 bulls and 300 sheep and goats. The priests, however, were too few to skin all of the burnt offerings. So their kinsmen, the Levites, helped them until the task was finished and until the other priests had been consecrated. For the Levites had been more conscientious in consecrating themselves than the priests had been. There were burnt offerings in abundance, together with the fat of the fellowship offerings and the drink offerings that accompanied the burnt offerings. So the service of the temple of the Lord was reestablished. Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced at what God had brought about for his people because it was done so quickly. So don't tell me it would take a long time to turn this nation around. I'll tell you what, having a leader stand up and say they're going to com- or try to combat climate change, like as if that's their, their great manifesto to try to change the climate. Last I checked, you can't change the weather. What we need is a leader who's going to stand up in our nation and say, we need to return to the Lord our God. And it's not about being a conservative or a progressive or a liberal or or a Democrat or Republican or an independent. It's about being a godly person who recognizes we need God and we need him now. 
They were rejoicing because things were able to be turned around so quickly. Well, of course they were. God turns things around quickly, amen, when you cry out to him. It it, it makes me crazy to see our leaders who are just evil, wicked people not crying out to God, not only not crying out to God, embracing wickedness and perversion instead of crying out to God, rejecting God and his word, defying God and his word. May God's judgment according to his will happen in his time. Amen? And may he restore our land. Oh, how can you pray that? Well, I don't know. The the Bible is full of men and women praying that exact prayer, so I'm going to go with that, if that's okay with you. So looking at this, we learn he had such a great concern for the Lord's temple. He immediately repaired the doors and assembled the priests and the Levites. He didn't wait any time. He didn't waste any time. He commanded them to consecrate themselves and purify the temple, which they did. And then he publicly repented for their unfaithfulness and their neglect of the temple sacrifices. And then he recommissioned the priests and the Levites to serve in the temple. And the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves and purified the temple for service. Everyone came together to turn things around. And it happened so quickly. And they reinstituted sacrificial worship and praise and worship at the Lord's temple in lightning speed. So brothers and sisters, just like we talked about on Sunday, sort of a reoccurring theme, when we're studying in the book of Daniel in chapter 10, we need to be busy praying for God to do this work through good and godly men and women. All right? We need to pray. That's what we're called to do. Pray that God would bring the kind of revival that he brought through Hezekiah, and may he work in a mighty and powerful way the way he promised Daniel he would work in Israel's future. Please don't give up on our nation, on our people, or on the church. It is never too late with God. We can cry out to God. Think about Nineveh. Jonah didn't even want to preach to them. He knew God was merciful. He knew that if they repented, God would spare them. So he reluctantly went, you might say. (laughs) He gets there, and he says, 40 days, and then the judgment, and then everyone repents, and God spared them the judgment. That was Nineveh. These were brutal, cruel people, and God spared them. Will God, can God, will God spare the United States of America for our great wickedness? Amen? Yes, if his people who are called by my name, he says, will humble themselves, right, and cry out to God and ask him to heal our land. He will heal our land. But we have to cry out to God and humble ourselves and pray and repent of our sins. So that's hopefully an encouragement to you. Now, one of the other things he did... In chapter 30, he invited all Israel and Judah to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover to the Lord. Now, it's very interesting because it had been a long time since this was celebrated, obviously. Even before the time of Ahaz, they were real lax about when they celebrated the Passover. So I'm going to read quite a bit more. Again, all you have to do is listen, but we'll get through this quickly. Uh, In chapter 30, verse 1 through, that's pretty much the whole chapter into a little bit of the next chapter, we're going to read about the fact that Hezekiah celebrated the Passover. And I'll do my best to read clearly and as quickly as I can and still be understood. In verse 1, Hezekiah sent word to all Israel and Judah and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh. That's the northern kingdom of Israel. They were wicked and he still reached out to them inviting them to come to the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. The king and his officials and the whole assembly in Jerusalem decided to celebrate the Passover in the second month. They had not been able to celebrate it at the regular time because not enough priests had consecrated themselves and the people had not assembled in Jerusalem. 
The plan seemed right, both to the king and to the whole assembly. And they decided to send a proclamation throughout Israel from Beersheba, which was in the south, to Dan. (coughs) Dan was in the extreme north of the kingdom of Israel. Beersheba was in the extreme south. And so, actually, throughout all Israel and all Judah, they invited everyone, not just the kingdom of Judah, but even the kingdom of Israel, to come and to celebrate the Passover to the Lord. So they decided to send a proclamation throughout Israel from Beersheba to Dan, calling the people to come to Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. It had not been celebrated in large numbers according to what was written. The people hadn't done what God had commanded them to do. That's basically what we learn. At the king's command, couriers went throughout Israel and Judah. Remember, he's not even king of Israel, but he's still reaching out to them. And the couriers went throughout Israel and Judah with the letters from the king and from his officials, which read, and here's the letter, people of Israel, return to the Lord. Amen? Return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may return to you who are left, who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Do not be like your fathers and brothers who were unfaithful to the Lord, the God of their fathers, so that he made them an object of horror, as you see. Do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were. Submit to the Lord. Come to the sanctuary which he has consecrated forever. Serve the Lord your God so that his fierce anger will turn away from you. If you return to the Lord, then your brothers and your children will be shown compassion by their captors and will come back to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate. He will not turn his face from you if you return to him. That is such an encouraging letter. And it's all true. God is so merciful and compassionate. He says that of himself in the book of Exodus. Well, the couriers went from town to town in Ephraim and Manasseh, as far as Zebulun, which is in the north, but the people scorned and ridiculed them. Nevertheless, some men of Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves and went to Jerusalem. Also in Judah, the hand of God was on the people to give unity of mind to carry out what the king and his officials had ordered, following the word of the Lord. A very large crowd of people assembled in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the second month. They removed all the altars in Jerusalem and cleared away the incense altars and threw them in the Kidron Valley, which we already read about. They slaughtered the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the second month. It was supposed to be of the first month, but it took them time to to restore the, the, the kingdom and consecrate the temple. Well, the priests and the Levites were ashamed and consecrated themselves and brought burnt offerings to the temple of the Lord. Then they took up their regular positions as prescribed in the law of Moses, the man of God. And the priests sprinkled the blood handed to them by the Levites. Since many in the crowd had not consecrated themselves, the Levites had to kill the Passover lambs, for all those who were not ceremonially clean could not consecrate their lambs to the Lord. Although most of the uh, many people who came from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun had not purified themselves, yet they ate the Passover, contrary to what was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the Lord who is good... Pardon everyone who sets his heart on seeking God, the Lord, the God of his fathers, even if he is not clean according to the rules of the sanctuary. See, they showed some grace. Under the circumstances, grace was necessary. And the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. And the Israelites who were present in Jerusalem celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days with great rejoicing. And when the Levites and the priests sang to the Lord every day, or while the Levites and the priests sang to the Lord every day, 
accompanied by the Lord's instruments of praise. Now, Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to all the Levites who showed good understanding of the service of the Lord. For the seven days they ate their assigned portion and offered fellowship offerings and praised the Lord, the God of their fathers. And the whole assembly then agreed to celebrate the festival seven more days. So for another seven days they celebrated joyfully. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, provided a thousand bulls and seven thousand sheep and goats for the assembly. And the officials provided them with a thousand bulls and ten thousand sheep and goats, and a great number of priests consecrated themselves. The entire assembly of Judah rejoiced along with the priests and Levites and all who had assembled from Israel, including the aliens who had come from Israel and those who lived in Judah. And there was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the days of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. The priests and the Levites stood to bless the people, and God heard them, for their prayer reached to heaven, his holy dwelling place. And when all this had ended, the Israelites who were there went out to the towns of Judah, smashed sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. They destroyed the high places and the altars throughout Judah and Benjamin, and in Ephraim and Manasseh. And after they had destroyed all of them, the Israelites returned to their own towns and to their own property. So now we're actually given the details of how they got rid of all of those places, those high places and places of false worship. He inspired the people, and the people brought the cleansing of the land. See, the role of a leader is to inspire the people to serve God. That's true for pastors, but it's also true for the leaders in our nation. They're called to inspire us to serve God. What we have now is a group of demon-possessed people inspiring us to serve Satan. Or, Or how else can you describe the Holocaust of abortion? or the perversion of transgenderism, or confusion about gender, or any of the things that are destroying our nation right now, the financial problems we have, the situation at the border. The problems are real. The problems are significant. But God can do all things. So may God give us leaders who will cry out to God and inspire the people of this nation to cry out to God that we would tear down these altars to false gods that we would bring cleansing to the land as the Lord inspires and empowers us. So we learned that they, they cleanse the land, but now we find out how he inspired the people to do the work, and they did the work unto the Lord. Amen? It's a beautiful testimony of revival. There's probably very few revivals in the Bible that come close to the revival of Hezekiah, king of Judah. And so that's why I don't want to just skip over these verses. I know I'm just reading them, but they're powerful couple of comments and then we'll wrap this up. This man invited all Israel and Judah to come to Jerusalem. Some scorned, right? And some will always scorn. But he decided to celebrate the Passover in the second month instead of the first month because he desired to follow the spirit of the law over the letter of the law. One of the problems we get into as Christians, when we get so fixated on following the letter of the law that we forget the spirit of the law. It was too late for them to celebrate the Passover on the right day. So what were they supposed to do? Not celebrate it at all? Well, it's interesting because if you read Numbers chapter 9, verses 1 through 14, the Lord had made provision in the law for just such a desire. He specifically said in the book of Numbers in chapter 9, if you're not clean in that first month and you want to celebrate the uh, Passover in the second month, do so. 
So they weren't violating the law. They were using one of the clauses that allowed them to celebrate the Passover a month later. God had foreseen their needs and provided for them. He graciously invited, this man Hezekiah, graciously invited the remnant of Israel to repent and return to the Lord. Now, some in Israel scorned, it's true. And they rejected him while others responded in humility. I'm hoping that enough will respond to the message of the gospel. I don't expect that everyone in this nation will. There's always a few people who are just completely given over to wickedness. But we can see things change as we pray our way toward revival. Judah responded in obedience to the word of the Lord, thankfully. And a very large crowd of people, we read, assembled in Jerusalem, and they celebrated the Passover. They removed and destroyed those idolatrous altars in Jerusalem. And I love that Hezekiah consecrated those that were unclean through prayer. And he did so with the Lord's approval. That goes to show you that there is the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. The letter of the law says you got to do this, wait a certain amount of days, and, you know, do everything just so. But Hezekiah had a relationship with God and understood that God would be pleased if these people repented and were cleansed through prayer. You realize you can be cleansed through prayer? You, you don't have to go through all the rigmarole and the rites and the rules of, of the law to be cleansed. And today, you cry out to Jesus. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Amen? That's through prayer. You can be cleansed through prayer. So that's what happened. And the people were inspired to joyfully praise the Lord for 14 days. Seven wasn't enough. They went an extra seven. Imagine that. And, of course, the Lord heard their prayers, blessed them for their obedience to him, and then they were inspired to remove the high places and all of the idolatrous images from the land. Listen, when I read about a revival like this, I get inspired to pray. I I also realize the difference one man or one woman can make. Remember, a woman named Abijah made a difference in her son's life, Hezekiah. And then Hezekiah, one man, made a difference in the kingdom of Judah. Please, do not look at things with the eyes of fear or doubt. We're going to see the whole reign of Hezekiah was filled with moments where they needed to trust God, and God miraculously intervened over and over again because one thing you could say about Hezekiah, he depended on God. He depended on the Lord. You know, one of the other things he did, and uh, I'll read this. We've got just a couple minutes, and then this will be the last reading. He faithfully provided for the priests and the Levites. He provided for those who served God and his people. You'll remember Ahaz did not. He closed the temple. He sent everybody packing. Put all the worship leaders and the Levites and the priests on furlough. This man provided for them. Let's uh, read the rest of chapter 31. I'll take a deep breath. You hang in there with me? We'll get through it. (laughs) Okay. Verse 2, chapter 31. Hezekiah assigned the priests and the Levites to divisions, each of them according to their duties as priests and Levites, to offer burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, to minister, to give thanks, and to sing praises at the gates of the Lord's dwelling. The king contributed from his own possessions for the morning and evening burnt offerings and for the burnt offerings on the Sabbaths, new moons, and appointed feasts, as written in the law of the Lord. You'll see that a lot, as written in the word of the Lord, as written in the law of the Lord. He ordered the people living in Jerusalem to give the portion due the priests and the Levites so that they could devote themselves to the law of the Lord. And as soon as the order went out, the Israelites generously gave the first fruits of their grain, new wine, oil, honey, and all that the fields produced. 
They brought a great amount, a tithe of everything. And the men of Israel and Judah who lived in the towns of Judah also brought a tithe of their herds. That's a tenth. And flocks. And a tithe or a tenth of the holy things dedicated to the Lord their God. And they piled them in heaps. They began doing this in the third month and finished in the seventh month. And when Hezekiah and his officials came and saw the heaps, they praised the Lord and blessed his people Israel. I'm just going to say one little thing. I want to interject this. Because I want you to know how good God is. This is not meant to brag. This is not meant to make you think highly of this church. I just want you to understand something. One of the challenges that I have as the president of the board, not not so much as the pastor of this church, is managing the large number of funds that God has blessed us with. I have to spend considerable amount of time properly managing our portfolio because we haven't purchased a building yet, right? So we have some amount of funds. They're heaps, literally. And what a wonderful problem I have as the pastor of this church, as the president of the board, that literally we, we've never asked for money, not even once. You know that we don't receive offerings. There's a box in the back if you want to do like the people did here. And yet there are heaps of resources that we can pour into ministries, which we do. All types of ministries, outreach ministries, pregnancy centers, you know, uh, what wonderful outreach ministries that we're a part of. You can check out on our website under missions and ministries and see all the different ministries we support. But that doesn't happen because I'm smart or we're rich. It happens because God provides for people who trust him. Can I hear a real good amen? So I just feel like, wow, heaps. And look what they did. They praised the Lord when they saw the heaps. I praise the Lord when I see the heaps. It's just God's wonderful, abundant provision for us as a church. If, if you attend a church where they're constantly begging for money, maybe you should ask yourself the question, and I don't know the answer, why? Why? I'm not going to go any further than that. Hezekiah asked the priests and the Levites about the heaps. <laughs> and Azariah, the chief priest from the family of Zadok, answered, Since the people began to bring their contributions to the temple of the Lord, we have had enough to eat and plenty to spare. Because the Lord has blessed his people and this great amount is left over. Left over. You ever go to a restaurant and you come home with another meal? It's a good day. Well, Hezekiah gave orders to prepare storerooms in the temple of the Lord, and this was done. And then they faithfully brought in the contributions, tithes, and dedicated gifts. Conaniah, a Levite, was in charge of these things, and his brother Shimei was next in rank. And then it lists the names of a number of other people who were uh, supervisors under them. Um, and, and by appointment of King Hezekiah and Azariah, the official in charge of the temple of God. So they were setting up accountability. There wasn't one guy with a checkbook. There's a large number of people responsible for the resources that God had blessed them with. And that's why we have a board of trustees and why I'm not the only person responsible for managing the resources within this church. Well, Korah, son of Imna, the Levite, keeper of the East Gate, was in charge of the freewill offerings given to God, distributing the contributions made to the Lord and also the consecrated gifts. Eden, Aminium, and a couple other people mentioned there, we don't need to pronounce their names, uh, assisted him faithfully in the towns of the priests, distributing to their fellow priests according to their divisions, old and young alike. In other words, God was providing for all of their needs. Brothers and sisters, where God guides, God provides. But I'm going to back that up and say, if God is not providing, maybe 
He's not guiding. In addition, they distributed to the males, three years old or more, whose names were in the genealogical records, all who would enter the temple of the Lord to perform the daily duties of their various tasks, according to their responsibilities and their divisions, and they distributed to the priests enrolled by their families in the genealogical records, and likewise to Levites, uh, Levites 20 years old or more, according to their responsibilities and their divisions, they included all the little ones, the wives, and the sons and the daughters of the whole community listed in these genealogical records, for they were faithful in consecrating themselves. As for the priests, the descendants of Aaron who lived on the farmlands, around the towns, or in any of the other towns, men were designated by name to distribute portions to every male among them and to all who were recorded in the genealogies of the Levites. The genealogies of the Levites. This is what Hezekiah did throughout Judah doing what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God and everything that he undertook in the service of God's temple and in obedience to the law and the commands, he sought his God and worked wholeheartedly and so he prospered. You know, there's, there's really no need to comment. When you do what God has called you to do, you prosper. You're blessed when you obey God. This man faithfully provided for everyone because everyone faithfully provided for the priests. He personally supported them. He encouraged the people to support them as well. And the people abundantly provided for the needs of their leaders, the priests, the Levites, and their families. And he prospered because he did what was right and served the Lord wholeheartedly. So, are you prospering? We know our nation isn't prospering right now, but we know why. Because our leaders are not seeking the Lord wholeheartedly. We pray for leaders that will, or that our leaders will repent and seek the Lord wholeheartedly. Our church is being blessed, so we can only thank God for being so gracious and and continuing to provide for us as a fellowship. But you personally, do you have the resources that you need? Is God providing for you? Are you prospering? Well, let me ask you another question. Are you serving God wholeheartedly? Are you seeking for opportunities to serve God and his people? Are you investing in the kingdom of God according to his leading, not anyone's pressuring? Are you obeying the word of God, the law of the Lord, as it pertains to us as Christians in the New Testament? Are you loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself? Because if you do, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments, and you will be blessed. You want to be blessed, say amen. If we want to be blessed, it's really pretty simple. Call upon the name of the Lord. Live your life for him. Serve the Lord wholeheartedly. And enjoy the prosperity and the blessings of the Lord. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you. You are a good and gracious God. You love us so and you've done such wonderful work in our hearts and in our minds. And Lord, this evening you've encouraged us to pray for our nation and to cry out to you. Lord, we simply ask that you would be glorified through our lives and in our lives. And that our lives would be a shining testimony of what it means to trust you. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.